Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this building, for these people, for the gifts and the service of all who contribute in one way or another for our sake so that we may study and be here tonight. And Father, thank you for the time that we've been in this study for months now to see the work of your Spirit in the early years of the church. And tonight, Father, we are watching Paul in the midst of persecution. We're watching him, Father, deal with the way the world treats those who declare the proof and the, and the miracle of the resurrection. And Father, we are to study it, I know, so that we can understand it. But I also ask, Father, that as we study it tonight, it would become a source of courage to each of us in the way we ourselves are called to witness in our own way. And that we would uh, see Paul not only as a man who, who heard and listened to your spirit and uh, followed, but also Paul would be a man who would, uh, who would be our model for how we might also follow the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 25 and 26, the trials of Paul are continuing, both figuratively and literally. Last week in 24, we watched Paul on trial before Felix, who was the procurator for Judea. They were in Caesarea. Felix had Paul in custody and began the trial. That trial went nowhere, concluded nothing. There was no verdict from that trial. Instead, Felix just held on to Paul for two years in the prison there in Caesarea. And... Eventually, Felix, we learned at the end of chapter 24, was relieved of his command in Judea because he had mistreated the Jews during an uprising. And as a result of him being deposed, actually recalled back to Rome, a new man came onto the scene, a new procurator, Festus, and he now becomes our focus tonight in chapter 25 and chapter 26. And then as well, there's a third character introduced tonight in chapter 26, King Agrippa, who will watch as well. The story we're watching or we're studying here of Paul in these trials is constructed by Luke, the author, in a way to highlight both the absurdity of what's going on and the obvious controlling authority God has had throughout the entire set of circumstances. Remember, back in chapter 21, before Paul even reached Jerusalem, we were told then that all of this would happen, not the details of it, of course, but the mere fact that Paul was going to be bound and that he was going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, over to the Romans. And we've known that's been coming. And in the way it was proclaimed in chapter 21 through prophets and so on, through the Holy Spirit's testimony, we also understood that was God's intent. God was bringing Paul to Jerusalem so that he would experience these things. So in a way, Luke has already tipped his hand about what's going on and why. But knowing that, we're struck by how silly all of these proceedings have been in human terms because Paul stands, even now, no proof of anything having been done wrong, and yet a guy can't get out of custody. And the, the way this chain of events has, has uh, played out from Jerusalem to Caesarea and then onward gets all the more ridiculous as we go. The point Luke is making in the way he's showing these, this, this contrast is while men have in their minds a certain plan and a certain effort, and they do it in a foolish way, God, meanwhile, is the one truly orchestrating all of these events for some greater purpose in his own glory. That's important, because as a Christian ourselves, as someone who may find themselves at one point under some kind of similar circumstances, some kind of persecution, think back to this example of Paul and remember, whatever reasons men have for doing what they do are immaterial, God is ultimately the one orchestrating what's happening. Chapter 25, let's read verse 1 through verse 11 to introduce this next section as Festus, the new procurator, picks up where Felix left off. Verse 1, Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. 
After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried, and I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Initially, as Festus arrives in Caesarea to take command, he decides very quickly he needs to make a trip down into Jerusalem to meet with Jewish leaders. And you can see the extent that the Roman leadership felt the need to appease Jewish authorities for the sake of keeping good order. This man knows where he needs to go first as he arrives in power. Remember, his predecessor Felix was deposed because he failed to keep a good relationship with the Jews. And, of course, Festus knows this. Festus knows the only reason he's got this job is because his predecessor went too far in how he mistreated them. And so he wisely, Festus fought wisely, makes uh, mending fences with the Jews his priority right now. So within three days of taking command, he's on a road trip down to Jerusalem. Now, one of the first things the Jewish leaders tell Festus when they see him for the first time is they want a favor. They want Paul, who's in custody in Caesarea, returned to them so they can put him on trial for his crime against Judaism for whatever accusations they've been making. But as Luke writes, the real purpose of the request was to get Paul out of prison and on the road again, as the song goes. And as he gets into town, coming onto the road that leads directly into Jerusalem, he's going to go from the plains of Judea into the mountain regions that surround Jerusalem, which provide ample opportunity for ambush. This is, remember, what they were planning to do the first time. But because Felix heard of the plot and got him out of town really quickly, they lost the opportunity. And plus, they had him you know, well guarded. So it's now two years later, a new guy has shown up, walks into town, and the only thing it appears that these Jewish leaders care about is killing Paul. Of all the things they chose to bring up with this new man and all the things of life under Roman rule that might have been at issue for them, this is the thing they care the most about. That's quite a testimony to how much the enemy wanted to put an end to Paul's ministry of spreading the gospel. And of course, as unbelievers, the Jews were merely pawns of the enemy as any unbeliever can be. Festus immediately recognized that this request was a, a test of his authority and his resolve and willingness to wield power over the Jewish people. Was he going to be played by them? Was he going to be their puppet? Or was he going to stand on his own two feet? That was the thing he had to consider as he heard this request. And he answers to them by saying, Paul is already under the custody of a higher court or a higher authority. It would be like a lower court talking to the judge of a higher court and saying, why don't you send that prisoner back down to us so we can try him? And that appeal court is saying, I've already got the case. We will take care of it at our level. I don't need to give it back to you. So Festus essentially says no to their request. But he does offer a sort of compromise. He says, you can just come with me as I leave here shortly back to Caesarea and you can try him again. So less than two weeks later from this moment, Festus is back in Caesarea and the trial begins. Now, the leaders, just like before, they cast all these charges against Paul, but still without any proof, without any proof at all. And you have to remember, be careful about assuming that an ancient society like Rome, something, let's say, before 1776, had no concept of rule of law or how to do things in a proper way, and everyone was corrupt and everyone just did whatever they wanted to do. It was totally lawless. That's very far from the truth. Roman law and Roman society were very strict, and people were very concerned about rule of law, and they had been for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Roman society. And as a result, when you see this transpire, this trial, if you want to call it that, with Charges being levied and no proof being offered. This is a mockery. This is a kangaroo court. Very atypical, very unusual for a Roman society. This is not the norm. And Luke's record of it is intended to illustrate that, to tell us how silly they've become in their attempts to prosecute Paul. Now, Paul in this moment does what he's been doing all along. He just maintains his innocence. Doesn't give any 
explanation. He doesn't try to refute anything they've said. He just says, you got no proof. I've done none of those things. Show me where I've done them, so to speak. Because Paul is 100% innocent. He's done nothing. He's done nothing to violate any Roman law, and he's done nothing to violate Jewish law. He adds a third category there. I've done nothing against the temple, because remember, that was one of the charges that was levied against him in the very beginning of this whole process when he supposedly entered the temple with a Gentile, which he in fact did not do. So here again, without proof, the proceedings go nowhere. So Festus must have recognized at some point in all of this that there wasn't going to be a way for him to give the Jews what they wanted concerning Paul because on the one hand, he saw their hatred for Paul. He saw how intense it was. So he knew that if he did the right thing, if he said, I have no proof, these charges are unfounded, you're free. Well, that would have been a really bad way to start his new career leading the Jewish people. He's got to be careful about upsetting them at such an early stage. He's trying to build bridges here with them. He's not trying to burn them. His hands are tied with respect to Paul. He can't let Paul go this easily. But on the other hand, there's no way he can convict Paul because he'd be ignoring Roman law. There's no way that Festus could bring this to a guilty conclusion without potentially bringing trouble upon himself from other Roman governmental authorities who would review this or hear of it and immediately note that he did not conduct the trial properly and that there was no cause for the guilty verdict. This is why I said earlier, Roman society was very respectful for the rule of law and they would have taken a very dim view of this had it come to a guilty verdict. And that's why you don't see Festus coming to that conclusion. He's stuck. So what he does the next best thing, he tries to appease the Jews. He floats this idea, this trial balloon, of them taking Paul back to Jerusalem and trying him there under their rules of law in their own court. In a sense, what Festus is offering to do here is wash his hands of Paul and just kick it back down to the lower court, so to speak. But he's got a problem. And the problem is that as a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to refuse this idea. Paul was in control of this uh, at this moment because he could not, as a Roman citizen, be forced to be subjected to some other uh, nation's laws and courts. It's extradition, essentially, and Roman law didn't allow for extradition of a Roman subject against their will. But here again, rule of law was very strict. That's why Festus asks Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem? And of course, Paul senses the danger immediately. If Paul were to agree to this, it's no good for him. And it's almost certainly going to result in him dying because, as Luke points out, the whole point of it was just to get him vulnerable so they could kill him. It also denies the reality of what Paul's already been told. If Paul were to agree to this, he'd be working against God's purpose. He knows that the intent of God in doing all that he's doing is to move Paul to Rome. So anything that would move him backwards is going against what God has purposed in this whole set of circumstances. Paul adds as he responds, he says, I'm standing where I ought to be, which is a way of saying, I'm a Roman citizen. This is a Roman court. This is where you try me. And then he adds, and I've done no wrong, and you know I've done no wrong. He's calling out Festus for not having the courage to make the judgment that he knows is the right judgment. Instead, Paul says, I am willing to respect the decision of this court, meaning if you found me guilty, I'd walk to the executioner. I would accept it. Obviously, Paul does not expect to be found guilty. He's not saying that because he's inviting it or because he expects it. What he said was, I'm willing to go to death at the judgment of this court because if that's where this court ends up, then I take that as God's providence for my sake. I'm willing to take whatever God gives me as a result of this set of circumstances. I'm not opposed to what this court's doing. I'm not fighting you. I'm completely willing to accept whatever comes because I know it's God's authority at work. Just as Paul wrote in, in Romans himself in chapter 13, he said, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that's Paul's attitude here. I'm subjected to this court. But then Paul says this, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, meaning it doesn't have the right to execute you for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. 
Now, isn't that ironic when you think about it? Paul is saying you have no reason to fear government. It's an appointed authority by God. And if you do what's right, you can expect that you will not have to worry about the government doing things to you, only if you're evil. And yet here's Paul now, in his own experience, doing nothing wrong but being subjected to the evil of government. How do you reconcile the two, his teaching on the one hand and his behavior on another? It comes down to the same point in both cases. In the way he wrote, he said, you subject yourself willingly to government because you recognize its authority extends to God and it wouldn't be doing what it's doing except that God is permitting it. And as a general rule, you can stay out of trouble if you just do the right thing. But that's no guarantee that government will always do the right thing. And as Paul now experiences persecution at the hands of government, the chief rule is still the same. All that comes upon me in the, in the color of authority is coming because God has permitted it. So when I oppose government, I'm opposing God ultimately. So Paul was willing to avail himself of the rights that were his under government. He was not silent. He didn't uh, refuse to participate in the process. But as he participated, he didn't let that change his attitude with respect to the outcome. Had they made a guilty verdict, he wouldn't have tried to escape from jail because he viewed it as unfair. There's a fine line there, but it's, it's important and Scripture keeps it up consistently. He sensed that Festus was probably not inclined to do the right thing, so he said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, that appeal is a legal maneuver. It's not a request. It's not, it's not simply a statement. It actually has the force of law. He was availing himself of a right that had been granted to every Roman citizen in the year 509 B.C. That's how far back this, this right of Roman citizenship extended. In that year, in 509 B.C., that's the year that the original Roman kingdom that began in present-day Italy, ruled by monarchs, was replaced by a new republic that had a senate and had a constitution. And that was the starting point in 509 B.C. with this senate and constitution, a republic, in other words, the Roman Republic, that later became the Roman Empire. And it would last in various forms for nearly 2,000 years, coming out of that moment. One of the rights granted to Roman citizens in that constitution in 509 B.C. was the right to appeal to Caesar for any judgment that was given to them in court. So if you were found guilty of something, uh, you could appeal to Caesar as a right as a Roman citizen. And that meant that you would travel to Rome, your case would be heard literally by Caesar, and Caesar had the final determination, like the Supreme Court. But there was no question, you didn't have to wait to see if you got to the Supreme Court or if they took your case or any of that. When you appealed, you were, taught, you were taken there. So Paul's invoking of this special appeal immediately ended Festus's authority over him in this trial and forced Festus's hand. There's no more discussion. There's no, no other option. He was now going to go to Rome. Arguably, if we wanted to play what ifs here, had they let Paul go, he would have been in greater jeopardy than he is now in custody, for he would have been let loose without guard, and he would have been at the mercy of the Jewish authorities who might want to track him down and kill him wherever they could find him, and they could do that very easily. Uh, this way guarantees him safe passage to Rome, as God intended. And really, as we said, I think, last week, does it make any difference to Paul where he sleeps or how he gets his meal? I mean, he could be free living in someone's home and ministering to people, or he can be in prison getting fed for free and ministering to the guards. It's all the same. If he's got to go to Rome anyway, let's do it this way. This maneuver was his last card, and he plays it now in a way that forces Festus' hand. You might ask now, why wouldn't every prisoner always appeal to Caesar especially if they've just been convicted of something. In other words, how does this system actually work with thousands, if not millions of citizens? Everyone convicted would logically make this same appeal. How could all of that go up to one man and still be heard? How does that work? Well, the answer is many did do that, but only as a last resort, and others never did. And the reason is you were actually guaranteeing yourself an awful long wait because going to Rome to see Caesar would have meant spending an awful long time in chains and enduring that, while there's no guarantee that when Caesar actually did see your case, it would work out any better for you anyway. Caesar didn't have time to see these people on a daily basis, and you could wait years before your case was heard. So when you appealed to Caesar, hoping to get another hearing on your case, you were assuring yourself a long incarceration under very unpleasant circumstances, and at the end of it all, probably not much better outcome anyway. The only people who had strong motivation to do this for people who were facing death. 
any other kind of conviction that resulted in any other kind of punishment, arguably be better to take the punishment than to go to Caesar. In Paul's case, though, you still have the fundamental question, why has he waited this long to appeal to Caesar? He could have done it any time in the two years he sat in the prison with Felix. Well, he knows he's getting to Rome sooner or later. He doesn't need to rush it. And there's no reason to get his way out of prison in the meantime. This is where God wants him to be. Make the most of the time he has. He doesn't have to play this card any sooner than necessary. The only reason he's using it now is that it's the only way to protect himself from Festus sending him backward into Jerusalem and at the hands of the Jews. After Paul's appeal here, as he makes his claim to to see Caesar, Festus goes off and confers with his staff, and eventually he'll acknowledge the only thing he can say, which is, it's off to Rome with you. In verse 12, Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. That's all he could say. Now, at this point, we have an important visitor who comes calling for Festus, and we introduce a new character now into this situation, a man named Agrippa. Verse 13. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem... The chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with them about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss at how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. King Agrippa is actually Agrippa II, son of King Agrippa I, as you might expect. Remember that Festus' predecessor, Felix, was married to the daughter of Agrippa I, Drusilla? So Felix was married to the daughter of Agrippa I. This is Agrippa II. So that would make Felix Agrippa II's brother-in-law. Agrippa II is actually the last descendant of Herod in the line of Herods who ruled over Judea. Now remember, the Herods, they were not Jewish. They were actually descendants of Esau, Idumeans. But because they were so closely related to the Jews, they became a group of people that the Romans could install as kings over Judea to appease the Jews who wanted a king. And yet, because they were not naturally Jewish, they owed their kingdom, their rule, to the Romans. And so that ensured their allegiance to Rome in this place of rule over the Jews. So they were puppet kings. They were not truly worthy to be called king of Israel but they were called that by the Romans, placed in authority over the Jews, but their own authority was subjected to Roman authority. They were like a government under the government or an authority under the government, really a figurehead for the most part. Herod the Great started this line. He was the the one who did all the building that resulted in the modern temple of this day, of the, the, the Temple Mount that Herod built, and places like Masada, and he built the palace in Caesarea that's now being used for this trial. Herod the Great, remember, was the one who tried to kill the infant Jesus in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Herod the Great's son, Antipas, is the one who killed John the Baptist. Agrippa's father, Agrippa I, killed the Apostle James and imprisoned Peter. So now you have Agrippa II, the latest in a line of men who have opposed the work of God from the beginning. And the family, as I said, was installed by Roman authority as a puppet authority, But they themselves thought themselves kings of Israel. They bought into the myth and they enjoyed playing it out and living it out in their own life. And even though they had no credible claim to the title, they expected and demanded that Jewish society treat them as the kings. And they lived a very lavish lifestyle, living in the palaces and in the temple palace and so on. Agrippa II here was raised and educated in Rome. And he was essentially, therefore, Roman in his mindset and in his outlook and in his allegiance though he assumed his father's role as king at a very young age. His father died when he was a teenager. 
as the declared king of the Jews, Agrippa II had angered Jewish uh, authorities, Jewish leaders in the city by his frequent meddling with the priesthood. He used to install people as priests and remove people as priests and change the customs of the priesthood. He, He would do whatever he felt like in Jewish customs. He was the last of the Herods to rule. After A.D. 70 and the temple being destroyed, he returned to Rome and there was no more Jewish nation to rule. There was no one else to follow him. Knowing that background, I want you to read between the lines here a little bit for what's happening in this scene. Here's Agrippa showing up early in Festus's new rule to visit him on the occasion of Festus's arrival in Judea. Festus, for his part, must have seen Agrippa's arrival as an opportunity to help himself out of this jam with Paul and at the same time to build a bridge with Agrippa. You know, for, for the sake of Festus's own political career, good working relations with Agrippa and with the nation of Israel generally was to his own advantage. So he's working several things here politically at the same time. Festus's problem with Paul specifically was Paul's appeal to Caesar. Festus now, as we've said, is obligated to send Paul back to Rome. So the number one authority in all of Rome is going to sit and listen to the case against Paul, review the charges, review the proof, and come to a conclusion concerning Paul's case. Now, the problem for Festus is there's nothing for him to send. There's no charge to send. There's no proof to send. He's going to be sending a guy to Caesar who has nothing against him. What is that going to do for Festus in the emperor's eyes? It's going to make Festus look like a fool. Why is he bothering the Caesar with something like this? Why didn't he have the courage and the insight to make the proper decision in his own day and simply call Paul innocent and be done with it? So Festus has a real problem now. He has to do what Paul has asked be done by rule of law, but he now has to come to some kind of charge with associated proof or else look like a fool in front of Caesar. He's made his own bed. Now he has to lie in it and he's trying to figure out how to make the best of this bad situation. So if Festus can't trump up some kind of credible charge, he would have to go back on his first plan and release Paul rather than send him to Caesar. That would have been his only other option because there's no way he's going to send him to Caesar under these circumstances. But if he did that, then his standing with the Jewish authorities would be on rocky ground. So he's, he's between a rock and a hard spot. Who is he more worried about upsetting, the Jews or Caesar? His best choice here is to find some charge, and that's where Agrippa comes in. Agrippa is well-known for being an expert in Jewish law. Although he is not, quote, Jewish, he thinks himself such, and he spends a lot of time living in Jerusalem or in Judea generally, so he has very, he's great familiarity with Jewish custom and law. And so as such, he can be of great help to a man like Festus, who's new at all this stuff. So Festus deliberately engages Agrippa in a conversation concerning the case of what would otherwise be an insignificant Jewish itinerant teacher who's languished in prison for the last two years and for whom there's really no charges anyway. Why bring that up to King Agrippa? So he hopes here that Agrippa will give him some, something to use as charges. He quickly goes through the case here against Paul, how Paul came to his attention, of course, and all that goes with it. He does include some details here that are interesting, how the Jews wanted Paul in Jerusalem, but then he says Roman citizens are not allowed to stand trial except by Roman courts. And in particular, I like the fact that Festus here detected that the real issue in all of this was not a violation of law. It was a disagreement over Jesus. Festus, whether he understood what was really happening with Jesus or not, he at least picked up on the fact that what's really at the heart of all of this angst and anger from the Jewish authorities is they disagree with Paul concerning Jesus. And more specifically, whether he's dead or alive. Here we go again. Resurrection. The chief argument that the Jews had with Paul was his preaching on the resurrection of the dead Jesus. That was the central argument of the first century church between those in the church and those among Jewish unbelievers. Did Jesus really come back from the dead? For if that was the case, then the rest of Paul's gospel story would have to have been accepted as truth. It all centered on that, which is why Paul, when he writes Romans, says that the measure of saving faith is whether you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the chief differentiator in what you believe. Because to believe God raised Christ from the dead proves all his statements concerning who he was and the rest of the gospel story flows from that. But if you don't believe he was actually raised from the dead, then he's a fraud and nothing else matters. 
In whom do you trust for your own life after death? You trust the one who can testify that they had the power to raise themselves. For if they don't have the power to raise themselves from death, why trust them with your own life after death? That's the essential distinction of the gospel. And so Paul and these Jewish authorities have argued over that central point, and even to a casual observer like Festus, it was clear the real issue, the center of everything, was their view about the life or death of Jesus. He finishes, Festus finishes here by stating that he is at a loss to, to investigate these matters. He tried to suggest going to Jerusalem. That didn't work. Now his hands are tied. So then he stops the story here. He never really makes a request of Agrippa. He just stops. And he waits to see if Agrippa will take the bait. He's tried to make it intriguing to, follow, to see if Agrippa will follow. And right on cue, right on cue, Agrippa does what he hopes. Verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord, and therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. <laughs> For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. There's only one thing absurd about this, and it's not that. Paul's time before Agrippa begins with this pomp and circumstance moment befitting a king holding court. Paul is brought in before, and not only before just Agrippa, but you see the procurators also added an audience of commanders, which probably means of the military guard that was stationed at Caesarea. So they would have been there in all their regalia, and it would have looked very fancy, I'm sure. And also were the prominent men of the city. Now that city refers to Caesarea more than likely, though it probably also includes Jews who have come up for the event. They're not mentioned I doubt they're prominent, but there are probably some in the room. Paul, in a minute, you will see, makes a comment to the crowd, which seems to suggest that there are Jews present. So then after that assembly, Festus begins with an overview of the reason the proceedings are happening, what this situation is all about, how he heard of charges against Paul, found nothing to be true concerning Paul. And yet, because Paul appealed to Caesar, now he's complying with that request and sending Paul forward, but without charges, which it seems absurd to Festus. So here we are. Let's all find charges against Paul so we can get rid of this uncomfortable absurdity that I'm dealing with. In Festus's own statement, he condemns himself, at least on two accounts. First, he makes clear that Paul is innocent. Just that statement alone should have put an end to the proceedings. You're innocent. Case closed. But that's not the conclusion he draws from his own statement. He continues on to the proceedings of a justice process rather than letting Paul go free. That's where the absurdity is in his own behavior. He says it's absurd to send a man to Caesar without charges, and yet he encourages the audience before Agrippa, and now that it's taking place, he states its purpose as to find an accusation against Paul. This is not Roman law. This is not how a court is done. No different than our courts today. Can you imagine a court convened with the prosecutor standing up before the judge and the court and saying, we have here a man for whom there has been no evidence found that he's ever done anything wrong, but today we are assembled here to deal with this absurdity. I need to find something wrong with this man so we can send him on his way to jail. It's exactly that silly. They're no less silly for doing what they're doing than we would be to do that very same thing today. In response to his own words, the only logical thing for Festus to have done in this case would have been to release Paul but here again, we're confronted with the reality that Paul is here because God wants him to be here. And the silliness of it all amplifies that this is not by human design. This has to be something else. There is a spiritual war going on behind the scenes, and these people are being used in ways that they don't even understand, which proves the point of Paul in, in, in Ephesians 2, that we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against principalities and powers who are truly at work. So then the moment arrives for Paul's defense, and then you see the response. Verse 1, Agrippa says to Paul, said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. 
In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the, among the Jews, and therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, from the beginning, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify. And I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, and as they earnestly serve God day and night, or night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? It should be noted here, first of all, that Paul is the first one called to speak at his own trial in which there has been no accusations made against him. So even before anyone brings a credible charge, Agrippa says to Paul, defend yourself. It's a fishing expedition. It's almost exactly the same thing that happened to Jesus in the night of his own trial in which he was thrown up in front of these high priests and asked to defend himself and he did the right thing. He said nothing. He was silent in those moments by and large. Now, as unfair as this is, though, Paul gladly complies. Why? Because this is the audience he's been waiting for. Paul loves these moments. This is when his message will have the greatest impact. Go back to what we've said here a couple times. Why is Paul in prison? Not because he's being persecuted. Not because he did anything wrong. Not because these people have a reason to keep him. He's in prison because God put him in prison. Knowing that, he sees this as an opportunity to testify and witness, not as a need to defend himself. So Paul is not actively working here, in a sense, to defend himself. He has nothing to defend himself about. He is here to testify to the so-called king of the Jews. And his response, therefore, is nothing more than a testimony. His opening here is a sincere statement when he says, I'm glad I'm here before you, Agrippa. I think this is entirely sincere. I don't think it's at all flattery in the least. He's excited for the chance to speak and testify to this man. Imagine the opportunity for Paul here to preach the gospel concerning the king of the Jews to a self-appointed king of the Jews. And more than that, he must have been beside himself in anticipation for this because he knew full well what was at stake. Consider what would happen if God was prepared to take the church's chief prosecutor in the form of Saul and turn him into the chief evangelist, all the good that came from that. Then knowing that this man Agrippa is in the line of these Herods who for decades have been the ones to persecute not only the church but the Jews as well, if God could turn Saul, maybe he could turn Agrippa. And if he could turn Agrippa, what would come out of that? If the man who was appointed king of the Jews in this day became a Christian, what would that do for the sake of the nation of Israel? That's what Paul sees as his opportunity here. He must have wondered if such a conversion was on God's mind in this day. And so he sincerely says, I am thrilled to have this chance to defend myself before you. And also, he says, because I know you have a knowledge of Jewish scripture and of custom and of teaching. It's that much easier for me to make the appeal of the gospel to a man who understands the Messiah, the promise of the prophets, the fulfillment of all that we've waited for, the hope of the Jewish nation. You're somebody who can relate to my message. That's perfect, Paul says. Then he moves to the testimony first of his own history to his life before faith. He says, all these people knew me. They knew me very well. In fact, they remember I was a Pharisee. It's interesting by what he says here, we get a sense that Paul's fame as a Pharisee predates his fame as the evangelist of the church. He was known among Jews first for being a staunch, probably very intelligent, well-learned, and up-and-coming Pharisee. And as such, Paul says, everyone knows my history. I shouldn't even have to remind anyone. They know where I've come from. But he says, I'm standing trial here because I am now preaching the fulfillment of something everyone in Judaism claims as their hope and promise. I'm simply claiming that what we've all been waiting for has come true and that's reason to persecute me. And then he says in verse 6 that it's, my word is he's saying it's ironic that he would dare be tried for this hope that Jews are supposed to have, be persecuted for it, and that's specifically this promise of a coming Messiah. In verse 8, he appears to turn from Agrippa and begins to speak to someone or some group in the crowd. And I, this is where I believe he's 
he's identified some Jews who are visiting or who have come up for the trial. And he turns to them and he asks this rhetorical question to this group. Why am I being hated for claiming that a man was resurrected from the dead? Orthodox Judaism held to the resurrection of the dead without debate. Now, the Sanhedrin had debates because you had Sadducees who were not Orthodox and their liberalism caused them to reject certain Orthodox tenets, this being one of them. But Orthodox Judaism from centuries before had always held to the resurrection of the dead and looked forward to it. And Paul is simply pointing out that he is willing to declare Jesus was resurrected based on the proof that Jesus himself presented after he came back. And that was consistent with Jewish Orthodox teaching. You know, the enemy is always at work causing mayhem and hatred and destruction, but he reserves his greatest attacks for the truth that he opposes the strongest, for what God himself is, is declaring. Christianity's declaration of a risen Lord is the greatest threat to Satan's dominance of unbelievers, so it is the, the thing he attacks the most. And so this is the focal point for Satan's attack now in Paul's day. Now look at verse 9 as he continues. Verse 9, he says, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so enraged, or in, while so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dom dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So now Paul reminds them of his own conversion. This is the third time we've seen this. The first time was when it actually happened. Now we're hearing it described for the second time in two trials. But each time we get a little new detail. So without belaboring what we already know, let's look at what's new or different in this account. First, the description of how Paul is participating in the killing of Christians. We've heard references to Paul being one who persecuted or killed Christians. Now we see how it was actually done. When early Jewish Christians were tried by Jewish councils, Paul was apparently a voting member, at least in some cases, on this council. And he's the one, who, he says, who voted against these persecuted Christians, which then led to verdicts of death for them. When he says, I cast my vote, literally the Greek phrase is, I threw down or I cast down my stone. And that's a reflection of how voting was done. They had a stone, and then when the vote was tallied, they would cast their stone or they would hold it. And he, would, he was saying, I'm the one who dropped my stone to indicate I wanted to vote for guilt. From there, Paul went out, he says, to synagogues and to the temple to find those Jews who were worshiping Jesus so that he could remove them and persecute them. Interestingly, he says, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Now, that could mean one of two things. Either Paul was trying to cause them to commit blasphemy in the Jewish sense which would then give him a legitimate case against them, something he could prosecute them for and in that way kill them under Jewish law. So he was trying to make them blaspheme against God in the way the Jews considered blasphemy. Or Paul means he was working to get believers to speak against Jesus, which Paul now recognizes would have been blasphemy had they done it. Either way, the Christians apparently didn't cooperate and that enraged Paul, causing him to pursue them in foreign cities. Now, Paul's testimony here is always an opportunity for Paul to remind the crowd of from whence he's come. And that's really the point in this testimony. And, and we've covered this already, so I won't repeat it, but it's the same for us. Our testimonies are likewise an opportunity for us to relate from where we've come and how we've arrived at where we are, giving God the glory through it all. Paul was once the famous hater of Christians, the zealous Pharisee. Now he's the leader of Christians. 
That's a testimony that's hard to ignore. It's impossible to dismiss. How does a man make such a dramatic conversion? It argues for the truth of his message. And Paul uses it in that way. Also, we learn that Jesus spoke to Paul in Hebrew. Makes sense, but that's interesting. And then that little idiom that Paul inserts that Jesus apparently spoke. Here's the only time it appears. We've never seen this before. Jesus asked Paul, is it hard to kick against the goads? Jesus has such a great sense of humor because this statement is actually very funny. Goads are the spikes that are welded or or bolted to the front of plows behind oxen. Sometimes oxen don't like to do work. And sometimes they don't like the weight of the yoke on their neck. And sometimes they're just not in the mood. And the work still has to get done, so their way of forcing the hand of the farmer and trying to avoid taking on the yoke or, or obeying the commands of the farmer is to kick backwards, like a horse would kick. And they would kick at the plow to get it off them, to push it away. And farmers quickly figured out that they could solve this problem by putting really stiff, spiky uh, barbs on the front side of that plow. So as soon as the ox kicks back, ow, oh, that doesn't help. But what if the ox just kept doing it? Ow, ow, ow. It's funny, isn't it? It's injuring the ox, not hurting the farmer or the plow. It only succeeds in making itself feel worse. It accomplishes nothing in terms of removing the weight or the burden of the plow. It just keeps going anyway and still has this burden now with extra pain. That's the phrase kicking against the goats. That's what it refers to is self-destructive, pointless behavior that goes nowhere, that accomplishes nothing. Don't kick against the goats. It's very useful in looking at what Paul was doing from Jesus' point of view. This is where the humor of Jesus' statement comes in. Of all the things he could have said as he appears to Paul in all his glory and majesty and begins to give him this great commission and so on, he says, ah, you like kicking against the goats? There's a sense in this that Jesus is enjoying a bit of the moment here of showing Paul something Paul himself didn't know until now. It's hurting Paul to resist the growth of the church and attempt to put it down through persecution. It's hurting Paul spiritually speaking, eternally speaking. It's not stopping God in any sense from establishing his church. So why keep persecuting me is the obvious next question. Why do you keep kicking against the goats? Finally, Paul says he was appointed to be a minister and to be witness of the resurrected Jesus, not only on this road, but of additional times. That tells us Paul must have received additional visits from Christ, his resurrected form. He had access to the Lord and to his own teaching in much the same way that the other apostles did in the earlier day when Jesus walked the earth. Paul just received it from a resurrected Lord, but just as much in the flesh, just as much a body. Paul saw and walked with Jesus in some fashion in his resurrected form in a way that Paul could talk to him, listen to his instruction, and have the benefit of a a witness to the resurrected Lord. So now in verse 19, Paul ends, he says, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. And the Christ, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. The king stood up. And the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So finally, Paul testifies 
that his trial is merely the result of his obedience to Christ. Did you notice that in verse 22? He says, it's by the help of God that I stand to this day testifying to both small and great, which is an implication to both the crowd and to you, King Agrippa. But he's, he's clear here. Paul says, without God's help, he either would have already died at the hands of his enemies or he'd be standing somewhere else, but he sure wouldn't be standing here to testify. You see the backward view there from what we might assume ourselves? We might be standing in Paul's position saying, God, why haven't you let me out of here? Paul's standing in this position saying, thank goodness, by God's power, I'm able to be here. Notice the relationship. Paul is alive because God has sustained him for this moment. Now, I may be reading too much into the text, but I think that's implied in what he's saying. Not just that I'm here, but that I'm alive to be here in light of his enemies and their attempts to kill him. His life has been sustained so that he can testify in this moment and in later moments. He knows his life is not his own. And likewise, neither are ours. We live each day because there is something more we still have to do or testify concerning, else the Lord would have already called us home. I mean, that's self-evident. We don't live because we've been good to our bodies. We live because God has allowed them to, to exist for as long as he chooses. At a point here in the proceedings, we see Festus speak up. He's heard enough. He declares Paul is mad with all his great learning. You know, from Festus's unbelieving perspective, nothing Paul has said makes any sense at all. Not at all. It's complete gibberish. I was talking to someone just this week who was relating their experience before they came to faith and they were reading the Bible and they said, you know, it was in English, but it didn't make any sense at all. And I can remember exactly the same feeling when I was an unbeliever and I had at times here and there tried to pick up the Bible for whatever reason. And it was like I could not concentrate on what I was reading. My mind went to everything except what was actually on the page. And I kept asking myself, why is this so hard to read? Why can't I read this? Oh, I must not be into it right now. And I put it away. It was like it was impenetrable. And, there, and it very much is to the unbeliever. It is the foolishness of God to the unbeliever. Paul is speaking. Festus isn't reading. But it's the same thing. And to Festus, this is insanity. And he calls it what it is. He says, this is mad. You're mad. You're crazy. You're speaking nonsense to me right now. This is nonsense. That is the universal perspective of unbelievers. That's an important thing to understand as we bring the truth of the gospel in any context. In general, the principle is the gospel is nonsense unless and until the Lord's Spirit brings an understanding. Paul's response is to say, no, you're wrong. I'm speaking sober truth, which means sound-minded truth. And since Festus now has spoken up, though, it changes the dynamic of the meeting for just a moment. No one's quite sure what to make of Paul, at least as he begins his testimony. But then out of the blue, one of the more prominent members of the, of the room states for all to hear that the conclusion is Paul's an idiot or he's mad and this is nonsense. At that moment, someone of great importance is on the record for how they view the proceedings. To say what you think now will be something you'll take... Very, very great care in for fear that if you were to say something other than what Festus has now proposed, you're countering him publicly. So Festus's statement changes the dynamic now for what can, can be said or thought concerning Paul. Paul knows this, and so he goes directly to Agrippa in contrast to Festus. He knows the only one else in the room who has any hope to stand on his own feet and say something to counter Festus is going to be Agrippa. But he understands this is a delicate moment because these two men are working to get on each other's good side. And so there is going to be some intrigue about whether Agrippa is willing to counter Festus or not in this moment. But Paul knows he's got one shot and he goes for the score with Agrippa. He begins to talk to Agrippa as if no one else is in the room. Paul says, you do believe in the prophets, don't you? And I know you do. And you can see the intensity in that statement of Paul locking eyes with Agrippa and beginning to talk to the man personally. He's trying to take some advantage here of the king because as king of the Jews, Agrippa would have to publicly agree with that statement. Yes, of course I believe in the prophets. He could never uh, say anything other than that. He couldn't deny his belief in the writings of the Jewish prophets. So Paul is hoping to lead Agrippa here through a head-nodding exercise by getting him to agree and agree and agree to things he can't say no to. Maybe he'll move him all the way to the point of acceptance in the gospel. Now, Agrippa here responds with a very politically astute but noncommittal response. He can't agree with Paul, it appears, or else he risks countering Festus's public statement and then ruining his relationship with the procurator. So he, he avoids that. My translation, in the way it's translated this phrase, it sounds like Agrippa speaks in a lighthearted, 
dismissive way. You know that person who feels the uncomfortableness of a, of a family gathering where something's been said that's wrong and it's making people upset and there's that other person at the table who feels the need to make things better and so they make a joke, try to get people past the moment for a second. That's a, in a sense how this sounds in my translation. Agrippa saying, well, you know, if you keep this up, I might become a Christian. <laughs> Maybe this would just move us right past this uncomfortable moment with Festus and Paul arguing with one another. But in reality, there are four ways you could translate this statement, and I'm not sure if my, my version of the English version gets it right. From the Greek, you could come to four different subtle differences in meaning. One would be a kind of matter-of-fact statement. You are working quickly to persuade me to be a Christian. In other words, it emphasizes Paul's pace. You're working pretty quickly to try to get me to be a Christian. Secondly, it could have been a phrase as a question. It could have sounded like this. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? More like, you know, it seems like you would, exp- are, you, are you thinking that you're going to be able to persuade me to be a Christian just standing here in a few minutes? You know, to emphasize the absurdity of Paul's expectations. A third way would be another statement to say it like this. In summary, you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian? Or not as a question, but you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. He's like a court might summarize testimony and repeat it back to the witness to clarify. In summary, you're trying to persuade me to be a Christian. You know, something like that. Fourth, another question, it could have been, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? Saying, how dare you? Or how presumptuous of you to think you could achieve this in such a short time? I personally believe it's one of the two questions. Either he's saying, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? Or do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? Either surprised at the notion or upset at the notion, but in neither case suggesting what my text seems to suggest, which is he's actually contemplating it. Or it's possible as if he was on the road to conversion. We know that's not how faith arrives. It's not a process of reasoning out, proving little points, and then eventually deciding at the end of some long assessment that, okay, I agree with it. We may feel it happens that way in our heads, but the reality of it spiritually is it's an all or none proposition. You either are or you are not. You're not a little bit pregnant. You're not a little bit Christian. So he can't have meant this in the way it's being stated here in my version, literally. There is no such thing as an almost Christian. So the sentence has no meaning in the way it's provided in my text, I believe. It's one of the others. Paul responds, though, by saying, I don't really care how it happens. I don't care whether it happens fast, I don't care whether it happens slow, I don't care how it happens, just so long as it happens. Not just you, but everyone else in this room, if I could have my way. Paul's talking here with the heart of an evangelist. I love what he says here because it puts aside a classic argument among many in the church with regard to how salvation is brought, being that it is under God's control and and he's sovereign in this respect, but yet also we are called to work and to bring the message. How does that relationship work? How hard do we need to work? Should we even make a lot of effort at it? Maybe it'll just happen anyway. How are we to play with God's purpose here? Paul didn't worry about that. Paul understood and taught the biblical truths of election and God's sovereignty in salvation. We have his writings on that very point. Therefore, he recognized human power in the form of the evangelist is not the key. It is not the means by which salvation arrives. That's done by the Spirit of God. But he also knew God purposed to work through men and through the proclamation of the gospel. So he worked for every soul, and he didn't care what techniques or methods worked so long as they worked. He didn't attribute his success to the method, but he tried anything he could think of. They're not opposed. Those two concepts are not opposed. Look at the conclusion of this trial and of this entire chapter. This is Luke really working hard to put the whole picture together for us. Paul is clearly innocent, of any charge, and the verdict here is the same, inconclusive. It should have been innocent of all charges, but it's, it's just nothing. It's inconclusive. So Paul's clearly innocent, and his testimony puts an end to the proceedings, yet without the declaration of his innocence. And the climax of the entire moment is the last verse. With Agrippa speaking an aside here to Festus as they walk out of the room, saying, this man's innocent. And you know what? He'd been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Really? Even Agrippa's assumption that that's the reason Paul is still in custody is wrong. He could be declared innocent at this level and not go to Caesar. Paul wouldn't be upset if his appeal to Caesar was refused because he was let free. So there'd be no reason for anyone to be worried if he was set free. The point is, as long as you're in custody, the appeal to Caesar still has effect. Agrippa's suggesting, quite humorously, 
that the only thing keeping Paul in prison right now is his appeal to Caesar. But it makes no sense on its face. If he's innocent, he doesn't have any reason to be in prison at all. And he's had plenty of time for them to give him his freedom even before he appealed. Luke's footnote here proves what is so clearly evident in the events depicted. Paul is innocent, but his incarceration is orchestrated by God and not by men. And yet the men are blind to it. Heavenly Father, thank you that we were here, Father, tonight and that we had the patience to, uh, to hear all that you have provided in your word. And we ask, Father, that of all the things you may have touched us with as we've studied on this important part of Paul's life, I pray, Father, that those things of, of merit that have stuck with us would be things we would act on and think about throughout the week and work with and, and not merely dismiss as new knowledge. And I ask, Father, that we come back. Let us finish this book as we started with uh, a heart to hear and know your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.